Jail on Air takes you beyond legal. This podcast is for general guidelines only, and the contents do not constitute as legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. Hello and welcome to everyone out there. I'm Reina Christian and I'll be your host today. Now, in this podcast, we are going to talk about enforcing contract in Indonesia, a topic which may seem common but still need and urgent to be addressed. In this episode, we have here with me sitting in this room, they are Yasser Mandela and Febranto Swardi. Both are associates at Budijaya International Lawyers practicing in commercial litigation and dispute resolution, and also brilliant minds in the field. So, as a background, why are we talking about this topic today? Well, the enforcing contract is adopted from the ease of doing business ranking made by World Bank. I'm pretty sure that the listeners out there may have been familiar with EODB ranking. Uh, EODB survey measures the business regulations and conducted to a list of questionnaires and then ranks the ease of doing business on many countries based on 11 indicators. Now, enforcing contract is one of the 11 indicators and it is one of Indonesia's worst performing indicator among others. And it gives ranks to Indonesia 139 out of 190 countries. But this is a big issue, however, we are not going to talk about that today. Instead, we are going to talk more in the general context of enforcing contract. The contract may be enforced through various methods or legal avenues. One of the most common is to file a civil lawsuit to the district court. The other is to commence arbitration proceeding or mediation, whether it is in or out of court. But in this podcast, we are going to specifically talk about small claim court and suspension of payment. Alright, so uh, Toro, could you please tell us a bit more about the suspension of payment and insolvency in Indonesia? Thank you, Renat, for having a great opening. So, as you mentioned, one of the mechanisms in which a contractive party can enforce their contract is through a suspension of debt payment or uh, most known as PKPU penundaan kewajiban pembayaran utang nah to succeed in a SOP petition there are basic requirement that a contracting party who feel being quote-unquote betrayed by their other contracting parties to enforce the contract. First, they have to find other creditor because in order to be succeed for filing a SOP petition, there must be at least two creditor. One is uh, the petitioner Two is the other creditor who participate in the SOP process. The next requirement is that at least one of the debtors' debt is already outstanding. 
So not all of the debtors that need to be outstanding just only need one. And the last requirement is uh, the debt must be proven or can be proven in a simple manner. So what this simple manner mean? Uh, our law does not uh, specifically describe what it means, but generally the debt should not subject to any complicated contract challenges which requires separate legal proceedings to resolve. Normally, uh, debt arising from a loan agreement is a simple manner that can be proven. Before going further, uh, it is an interesting fact to know, Reinhardt, that uh, during 2020, there has been an increase of more than 200 cases than in 2019. So, based on a preliminary research, in 2019, there, is around, there was around 430 cases of SOP. But in 2020, there were 640 cases. This sharp increase is not unexpected since the COVID-19 pandemic has significantly impacted the economy of Indonesia. And uh, the SOP mechanism is an interesting mechanism and uh, attractive mechanism for a contracting party who feel that the other party has not yet performed uh, their obligation because during SOP petition or in SOP proceedings there is a strict time frame in which the judge must render its decision it's only 20 days since the application of the petition but of course during this pandemic, there might be a reasonable uh, extension for usually around one week until the decision is being rendered. Nonetheless, the timeline still being strict. What does happen if the SOP petition is being granted? Or what is the legal effect of a granted SOP status? to the petitioner or the debtor. First and foremost is the debtor or the petitioner cannot be forced to pay its debt within the suspension of payment period. The suspension of payment period first is 45 days for the provisional PKPU or PKPU sementara and can be extended to up to 270 days and enter into a permanent PKPU or PKPU tetap. And again, during this period, the debtor cannot be forced to pay its debt and all the payment is uh, being temporarily stopped. The purpose of this suspension of payments is to give the debtor a time 
to propose a composition plan to the creditors for their approval because the spirit of a SOP petition is settlement so settlement is uh, the end goal of the SOP petition normally the composition plan is being made by the debtors with the help of financial advisors and uh, of course uh, a legal counsel for this composition plan to be approved by the creditor the debtor must prove or show sufficient prospect of the business of the company or sufficient investment that will be made to the company or any divestment that are going to be made to pay all debtors obligations that are already due to the creditors in PKPU or SOP process so the composition plan uh, has to be approved by at least uh, two-thirds of each unsecured and secured creditors who represents each two-thirds of the admitted claim and that creditor is present during the creditors meeting so it is important to uh, collect to have the approval of this majority creditor the content of the composition plan will say the proposed timetable under which the debtor will repay its debts and also whether the debts will be fully or partially repaid so the basic idea is of course the restructuring of the debtor's debt a composition plan that is already approved by the creditors or already uh, meet the minimum requirement for approval will be ratified by the judge and then the end of PKPU process will occur and then it is now part of the debtor to execute the composition plan if the composition plan is being breached then again uh, the party that uh, is being breached can fine for the breach of the uh, composition plan and then uh, if granted then the debtor will go to the bankruptcy status what is important also of the legal effect of a suspension of payment petition is that a suspension of payment uh, petition that is already being rendered whether it is accepted or not is not subject to any legal remedy so if it is approved then coming back to my uh, previous elaboration that the debtor must make a composition plan but of course bankruptcy is for another topic in another podcast 
what is the practice of uh, SOP the SOP mechanism is also used by a contracting party to push the debtor to pay so the end goal or the expectation is not for the PKPU petition to be granted and then the debtor go to the uh, whole making composition plan process but to pay at earliest since the petition make the submission of PKPU or SOP because of the strict timeline uh, it gives some pressure to the debtor and normally what takes place is that the debtor pay the due amount to the petitioner and also the other creditor and then the petitioner and the other creditor withdraw the petition so that is also uh, normally the practice of using SOP in enforcing contracts but please be noted that uh, the debtor also uh, has uh, quote-unquote uh, it's his it's its move to try to thwart the PKPU petition by paying only one of the party for example uh, the debtor pay only to the other creditor then uh, the other creditor quote-unquote uh, being no longer uh, cooperative in the PKPU petition and then it results in the PKPU petition being rejected because uh, the requirement for other creditor is not met. So that is about the practice of SOP or uh, PK, PKPU that uh, usually be used to enforce a contract not to reach the composition plan, not to go to the whole PKPU process but just to force them, uh, the debtor to pay the due owing debt to the petitioner and the other creditor. Our law does not require any insolvency test. That means there will be no test about the solvency status of the petitioning or the debtor, whether or not uh, they can meet or could meet all of its obligation nevertheless because the wording in our law says that the creditor who foresee or expect the debtor to not be able to pay its due and payable debt to, to file a PKP petition usually the defense of the debtor of petitioni is they're saying i have a financial asset that is sufficient to pay my debts to the creditor and also the other petitioner so uh, there has been some cases that although the due and the, the, the due and payable debt uh, requirements and also the other debt already met but uh, because uh, there is uh, sufficient assets to pay uh, submitted by the petitioner then the court reject the PKPU petition but that is not uh, always the case but it is a normal defense uh, that the debtor usually make
or the petitioner usually make. So, to conclude, this mechanism of enforcing contract through uh, SOP petition suspension of that payment or PKPU is effective and uh, used by creditors, by party who feel the other party has not met their bargain of the contract because it has a strict timeline within which the judges have to render a decision also the data if being granted has to make a composition plan which if not being approved they will go forward to bankruptcy status and if there is a personal guarantor to the underlying claim it will create imminent pressure for the other party to just pay the claim so that's about uh, SOP process PKPU process in general right now uh, back to you because I know there is another interesting topic that will be discussed by Mas Yasser okay thank you for the insight Toro it is an interesting phenomenon in my view that suspension of payment has become more feasible option to enforce the contract and to the interest of the creditors and especially during the COVID-19 pandemic and now let's move on to the next topic regarding the small claim court now Mas Yasser could you please Tell us a bit more about Small Claim Court in Indonesia and how it works. Okay, uh, thank you Renard for the opportunity. So, uh, I think I'm going to talk a little bit about Small Claim Court. Renard previously talked about the EOEB ranking, which is made for all over the world to rank uh, several uh, things, including enforcing contract. So, the Small Claim Court is really a direct product of the EODB uh, things. Why? Because previously, before we learned that our enforcing contract rank is really bad in the EODB, we don't have any small claim court provision, uh, and we just have a we just have a general provision of uh, court proceedings, which which previously uh, regulated in the Indonesian Civil Procedural Code, which also in terms have a several uh, regulation, including the HIR or HIR, and then RBG or RBG, and the last one is RV. Uh, because as you may already understand, Indonesia was occupied uh, by the Dutch and we have uh, several laws that govern several kind of people and this also include the civil procedural, civil procedural law so uh, we just have this kind of general procedures we don't have any small claim court or any fast track procedure that may be recognized in other jurisdiction until the issuance of uh, the small claim court uh, regulation by the Supreme Court uh, I think it was in the 2014 or 2015 and then it was uh, renewed in 2018 and maybe this is a really breakthrough because why? previously the Supreme Court is not a really fond of providing new procedural uh, law or procedural issue why? because in Indonesia we don't have uh, judgment law uh, procedures which means that the judge cannot really provide a new regulation or a new procedure. So rather than that, the judge will always interpret the law from the uh, regulation, the existing regulation and laws and regulation, I mean. 
and then uh, they can go from there. And that's why, because up until today, the Indonesian Civil Procedural Code has not been revoked yet, and we don't have any new uh, procedural code, they are really afraid to provide a new procedural things like the small claim court procedures. So uh, in this case, I will uh, talk a little bit about the small claim court. Uh, small claim court is uh, not a really general for people. Why? Because people may not know that we actually have small claim court. But uh, it is really satisfying to know that up until today, there are like eight. 8,752 cases. It's only on 2019, the latest data that we have. But uh, I think it will improve un uh, up until now. Why? The primary reason is that this kind of small claim court is used by a party who have a small debt uh, against a third party or another party. Uh, and in this regard, the primary use, because it's getting popular, the small claim court, why? Simply because uh, the multi-finance and bank who usually have customers who has a debt against them, the debt might not be that big, maybe just around 100 million or maybe 200 million, which is uh, pretty small for a bank. And they utilize this kind of a small claim court uh, to ensure that they could have a minimum cost uh, for recovery. That's the first one. And the second one, to make sure that uh, the process can be settled in a very very short time why because the time frame for this kind of proceedings is only 25 days so let's say we filed it uh, now and then we have a notification for the first court hearing and after the first court hearing the judge will only have 25 days to render the decisions which is pretty fast compared to the general proceedings the I mean the standard proceedings which will usually take five until six months uh, at the earliest and this is extremely uh, good for people who think that they can finish the proceedings through settlement. My discussion with the judges in the courts in Indonesia, several district court, uh, they told me that uh, when we talk about small claim court, we talk about settlement. Why? Because usually the judge will really push the party uh, for settlement because uh, the, the claim is pretty small and they just think that, okay, maybe we can settle this uh, prior to the final decision. And that's what actually done uh, in practice in Indonesia. Okay, next, let's talk about the parties themselves. The parties are, of course, there must be at least a plaintiff and a defendant. And the defendant must only be one defendant. So you can have more than one defendant for these kind of cases. and both parties must have the same domicile and the thing is compared to the standard procedures there's no provision there's no motion there's no recontention there's no intervention there's no reply there's no rejoinder and there is no statement of conclusion which means that when you come to the hearing you just need to provide your statement of claim and the defendant will provide you with statement of answer and after that uh, evidentiary hearing and after evidentiary hearing then the court will proceed with rendering their decisions. It's pretty fast, which is why it could be done in 25 days time frame. However, approach is that although it is pretty fast, uh, you can still file for conservatory attachment. If you don't know what is conservatory attachment, it's some kind of a security 
it's some kind of injunction so that you can attach uh, temporarily attach your dependence asset for the fulfillment of the court decision if the decision is the decision is in favor to the plaintiff and then uh, also uh, i don't know whether it's already been talked about before in previous podcasts but indonesia recognize and adopt a new e-court system and this kind of e-court system can also be utilized for this kind of small time court proceedings which means it's make it a little bit easier for people who want to proceed with this uh, method another one uh, there's actually some strict requirement for this kind of proceedings first of all during the hearings the principal must come so although you already have a attorney still the principal should have come during the court hearing which is a little bit hard if the principal is not domiciled in the same uh, place with the place where the civil claim is uh, filed and then i guess uh, that's all maybe the last one i'm gonna talk a little bit about the relief so against the small claim court decision you can file an objection so it's really not an appeal it's not a cassation but rather it's an objection the objection must be filed in at most seven days since the date of the decision and after that the chairman of the district court will determine the panel of judges who will examine and decide the case in at most seven days since the death uh, the, the panel of judges was determined or appointed the court decision for the objection must be rendered but uh, sadly this kind of objection uh, decision cannot be appealed cannot be filed for cassation and it cannot be filed for judici- judicial review I think uh, that's all from me, Reynard. Oh, thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bang Asar, for the explanation. It is very insightful and interesting. And we could expect the growth in the in the number of the small claims court in Indonesian district courts. And therefore, we are at the end of our podcast today. Thank you very much, Bang Asar and Toro, of course. And thank you everyone who's listening out there. And hope you're healthy and safe out there, and goodbye. This has been Budijaya On Air. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the follow button, and make sure you subscribe to our website www.budijaya.law for more content like this.